Welcome to Four Points. We are humbled you've taken some time to come and join us today. We are in a series called March to the Cross. We're looking at this upper room discourse. It begins in John chapter 13, and it concludes in John chapter 17. It's four chapters, five chapters that are focused in on the last hours of Jesus' life. Many theologians believe that the reason we get this much detail in the book of John is because John would have been seated beside Jesus at the Last Supper, which is where a lot of the events and a lot of the teaching that Jesus gives are taking place at. And around this table in these last hours, Jesus seeks to point to uh, prophetically what would happen to him in the hours to come uh, and give teaching and an example for the disciples to follow whenever they are chaotically thrown into the unexpected. And so what we've looked at so far in this Upper Room Discourse, in John 13, Jesus demonstrates radical service and love. He washes the disciples' feet. He speaks of a love that will love them beyond the grave, a love that will love them beyond his departure, uh, a love that will keep them. And he speaks of that love and extends the offer of it to all of his disciples, including the betrayer named Judas. He extends his service even to the betrayer named Judas. And the point that we want to make is that God has given all of us common grace. Common grace is not salvific in that it doesn't bring salvation and it doesn't make us right before God. That comes through faith and believing in the work of Jesus Christ. But common grace is the fact that you and I have life and air that fills our lungs and a heart that beats in our chest. We've been given eyes to see creation or to experience, to touch, to feel, to taste. These are gifts from God, not rights that you have. They're meant to be a way in which you draw into worship of God. But we're told that according to Scripture in sin, all have turned to sin. And we've made idols out of these gifts that God has given us. But Jesus' desire is that we would understand the brokenness of an idol and the inability for sin to deliver its promises in our lives. Let me be very clear. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. Temptation is about you believing something can overdeliver and something that in reality, when it has its root and fruit in your life, will not be able to bring you what you long for deep within your own soul. And so Jesus demonstrates a service and a love to his disciples. Then in John chapter 14, he is now in the first 14 verses taught about his identity and his mission. He speaks of who he is. He speaks of what he's come to do. And perhaps a great summation of his mission and identity comes in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father apart from me. And so we, we've seen this uh, radical service and radical love now leading to a uh, definitive teaching about who Jesus is. But his words begin to bring the disciples trouble. And they disturb them. In John 13, verse 1, Jesus said this, before Pat, the Passover celebration, Jesus, and here's the key word, knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that they would praise him as he came into town on the donkey as Hosanna and Savior, and he knew that they would ridicule him in a few hours as he walked the Via De La Rosa as a curse to be sped on. Jesus knew the cross awaited him. Goes on in verse 3, it's repeated to make sure you knew that he knew. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. 
meaning he reigned in full authority and could have done anything he desired to do, but instead, to the glory of the Father, he laid down his life, though he was in all authority, though he was the Son of God. He gave him all authority over everything and that he had come from God and that he would return to God. He knew that this was going to happen. If you skip to the end of the chapter, verse 33, it says this again, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told you, or, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that it would bring confusion. He knew it would bring a moment where questions would rise up. And this moment wasn't devoid of those. Peter, just a few verses later in chapter 13, says this, John 13, verse 36, Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? How many of you have ever thought that question in light of the world's injustices that you've seen? God, where, where are you going? Where are you at? How does this play out to good? Because there's that whole verse in Romans that we put on a coffee cup and on a t-shirt that says, in all things God works for the good. And how can this suffering be good? How can a 14-year-old girl on her bike being blown out of the sky? Where, where's your authority? Where's your goodness? Where's your kingdom. Hmm. Peter's asking, where, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? Why can't we see your kingdom now, fully? Not, not, not vaguely, but, but fully. Why, why can't it just be over with now? How many of you have thought between 2020 and 2022, blow the trumpet Looking for a hand. Hands equal lunch. <laughs> like, blow the, like now, now let your kingdom come. Now, fully, let, it, let your will be done. Like, like enough of, of this. Just, just come back, Lord. Come back. Hmm. The Bible teaches us that God is love. It's the foundation to his character. Uh, love is not a forced response but it comes from the volition of the believer. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to observe creation and enjoy creation, and they would then, in the observance of that creation, look to God and worship and enjoy God and love God and adore God and serve God. But what happened in that creation is they zoned in on one part and made it more than it actually was. There was one thing that they had to have above God, and even if it cost them relationship with God and fellowship with God, they were willing to sacrifice that for it. That's what idolatry is. God being loving, sacrificed for them and pointed to Jesus. He said that there would come a son who the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head. And the crushing was about to begin in just a few chapters. In the most peculiar of ways, in order for the Son of God to rise, he would first lay down in the tomb. In order for the Son of God to win, he would first lie down in what looked like defeat. This is the kingdom of God and how it works. Now, God, being love, desires for you to love him, but we all in sin have turned from him. But he gave you a volition. It's not to say that because you are born like your first father Adam, forsaking God and in sin, that you are not responsible for your actions. No, you, you chose sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, but Christ came to give us life everlasting. You see, this is the truth. We love darkness and not light. But the light came anyway because he knew we needed his light in spite of the darkness. Are you tracking with me? So, so what we see laying out is God 
and his chief value being a God of love. So therefore, common grace exists and suffering for a time exists on earth. But don't get it twisted. God is just. And everything done on this side of eternity, according to Matthew 25, will be called before the judgment seat of Christ. And will either be justly accounted to his cross or to his eternal judgment. Some of you want justice now because you can't believe such unjustice reigns. Let me assure you that my God is a God of justice. And no sentence on earth pales in comparison to what waits any one of us apart from Christ on the other side of eternity when we stand before his judgment seat. Many of you think great justice would be that we would get a prison sentence or sanctions. Let, let me assure you that eternal sanctions are the deepest level of sanctions that any of us have been given. And we all face them apart from Jesus. So it either goes to his cross where his blood paid justly to forgive it, to reconcile it, or it comes to his judgment seat where it's justly eliminated. In the meantime, we get common grace where you and I get the opportunity to hear the gospel and choose and respond as the Spirit works to draw us as to whether or not we will believe in faith. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is faithful and just to forgive you. Not because of your works, not because of your future promise of I'll change it. I'll fix it. I'll get it under control. No, you won't. You will not get your sin under control. You are identified by sin until you are raised to life in Christ. You are living a carnal existence until the Spirit of God comes to reign over you and now lead the flesh into honoring God where it once was led by the flesh in your will into dishonoring God. I'm, I'm giving you a lot of theology this morning on the front end, but got to move. Are you tracking with me? So we have this season of common grace to hear the gospel. And here's what Jesus knows. He's going to leave the disciples. They don't understand it. They're going to question it. Thomas questions it in John 14, verses 3 and 4. Where are you going to go? Jesus says, you know where I'm going to go in John 14. And Thomas goes, no, I don't. Look at verse 5. We do not know, Lord. Like This doesn't make sense. If you're struggling to make sense of what's going on in God's goodness, you're in good company. Early Christians described the spirit-filled life as a wild goose chase. And here's why. Most of us, we want to know God's will for our life. And let's say God's will represents this white towel. Can you see that on the screen? You can if I drop it. Okay, this white towel. There it is. And we are here. So we should, in a direct line, if this is God's will, beeline it to the place where we can then say, I'm doing God's will. Now, I don't have the entire service, and this is not the point to teach, but you need to hear this. God's will is not a destination. There are specific calls God may give you in your life, but there is a mission that transcends any circumstance you face that's always with you as a believer. The Great Commission is always what we're to be about. Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples and, and teach them to obey, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, you can do that now. But, we, but I want something unique with details and special. No, no, no. The point is that you would do that. And anything means, platform, job, relationship you've been given, it's so that disciples would be made and the nations would know of the gospel. But many of us are so consumed with getting from point A to point B straight that we miss out on the spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled life is this. 
We're going on a journey, and if we're walking with Jesus, the Spirit-filled life, they call it a wild goose chase, is not linear. The Spirit-filled life does this. Just want to make, let it set in. I'm just waiting on it to set in. Some of you are like, it just feels like we're not getting where we need to go. And why did we come over here? Because there was a woman at the well in Samaria, and she needed to know the gospel. So we had to come over here. And it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. See, some of y'all, you're, you're computing this, and all of a sudden you find yourself, and you're like, oh, we did it. The whole time. The whole time we, we did it. You see, the spirit-filled life is not boring. The spirit-filled life is not easy. The spirit-filled life is unpredictable. The spirit-filled life is the Christian life. It's not linear. It's peculiar to a world that's dying in their trespass and sin. It doesn't make sense. What's going on in John 14 when you get to verse 15 is Jesus is recognizing that we need help. So he begins to speak on in John 14, and then he picks up the conversation in John 16. He speaks on the fact that he's already got a helper. You need help. Go ahead, look at your neighbor. Just tell him. Hey, when it comes to this Christian thing, you need help. Go ahead, tell them that. Tell them that. You need help. Go ahead. I, like four of you did it. Okay. Do you want lunch? Go ahead, tell them. You need help. Now, now pick your second choice who really needs help or needs less help. If you were everybody's first choice, we're baptizing at the end of this service. <laughs> Jesus offers help. I mean, this is kind of the idea. John... 14, verse 15, look, look at the text with me. He begins to teach. He takes two sections of teaching in his last hours just to teach about the need for and what the Holy Spirit would come to do. Now, in John 14, we're going to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. Then in John 16, we're going to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit to prepare the believer for ministry to the world. So there's the ministry to the believer, but then there's the Spirit's ministry to the world that's preparing for fruitful ministry to happen. Around us, John 14, verse 15, I can feel the Spirit of God and everyone being excited with all the rain. You're awake. Amen. Praise God. That many of y'all went to a country concert last night, huh? John 14. Glad you're here. Praise God. John 14, verse 15. He says this, if you love me, obey my commandments. Isn't that simple? If you love me, obey my commandments. It's like me saying, if you're going to marry me, be faithful to me. It's, it's kind of a no-duh, right? Like, like if we're going to get married, don't go out honky-tonking and singing, or else I'm going to be singing Reba McIntyre songs about you and Carrie Underwood songs about slashing tires and cutting. <laughs> so if, you're, if, you're, if, if we're going to if we're gonna do this, obey my commands. What are his commands? Well, we get the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized them in the, uh, in, in, uh, there's the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Praise God. One person's with me. The Great Commandment. And this guy comes and says, which one of the laws do we need to keep? What's the most important? And he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Commandments one through five are all about loving God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Jesus said, well, one to five is important. And about the time you get those down... Commandments 6 through 10 deal with loving your neighbor as yourself. So let me give you a summary. They're all important. Now, the law was given 
not so that you and I can live a self-righteous existence and keeping up tit for tat. Like, like I screwed up here, so I'm going to go to church here, and I'm going to drop a, an extra 10 in the offering so that God knows that I'm paying for my sin as if $10 can equate for an eternal sin against God, for cosmic rebellion. <laughs> the rocks cry out if we don't. We cry out when we have to pay. That's religion, right? Like, I'm going to present myself to God when I feel like I need to make penance. That's Easter and Christmas in America. But I actually have no intention of being different. I have no hope of actually changing. I'm just simply bidding my time and hoping His grace don't run out. That's man-made pharisaical religion. That's why Jesus turned over the tables. It had nothing to do about a market. It had to do with people coming to buy things that they could then offer to God without turning their hearts in repentance to Him. So I buy some doves, sacrifice them, then go and commit adultery physically, and it was paid for because I'd already paid for the sin. Jesus is in the corner going, I'm going to make a whip and I'll show you. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth that's out of control, do you want me to come in love or with a whip? God disciplines those that he... Okay, just, just tracking, seeing if we're computing here. here here's, here's my point. The call is to obey his commands. The problem is you can't. You can't. So what's the hope? Well, that's the gospel. See, your heart is set against God. The law was given not so that you could be justified by the law, but so that you would understand you need a Messiah to save and rescue you from it. (laughs) So the prophecies in the Old Testament speak of this. It says in Ezekiel that he would take the heart of stone and he would give you a heart of flesh, that he would write his law not on a tablet but on your, Woo! that's good news. So now it wouldn't be a law that you would observe with your eyes, but it would be a law that would come from within because the Spirit would live within you. Oh, my goodness. That's why we call it the gospel. That's why I can't get enough of this stuff. Y'all want to do this tomorrow? So, So the idea is that God would take what you can't do and he would empower you to do it because he would fill you with the Spirit to empower you. And this is how he does it. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate What's the Spirit's ministry to the believer? He gives us an advocate who will never leave you. He will never leave you, is what it says in verse 16. Let's get down to verse 26. He goes on to speak of this advocate again. He says, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I've told you. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a spirit that lives inside of you that has written God's law on you. That's why you have conviction and not condemnation. Some of you still got that twisted. I've been speaking about that a lot. But conviction is reminding you that God's not done with you, that there's grace that you can go a different way. Condemnation says you need to pay for it or you'll never pay for it. You've been rejected. You can't be received. But the Spirit comes, lives inside of us, convicts us of the sin that we are doing, calls us to the righteous path that we've not yet been walking, and empowers us to carry out that walk. That's good stuff right there. So he is an advocate for you. When you wonder, the Spirit woos you back. 
The Holy Spirit stirs your affection for Jesus. He's advocating, reminding you of the gospel. You've been redeemed. Those sins may describe you, but they do not define you. What you've done may describe where you've been, but it doesn't define where you're at and where you're going. You may not be what you want to be, but you're not what you used to be because the power of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and inside of you as a follower of Jesus. So you can have confidence that faithful is he who began a good work in you to carry it out at this completion. I feel like having some fun today. I don't know what's going on with them, Lord, but you preaching good, preacher. You keep going. You surrender. Three golf claps. Praise God. He advocates for you, number one. Number two, he leads you. He leads you. Look at verse 17. He goes on to say this, uh, Luke 14, 17. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you and later will be in you. Okay, he's saying he'll lead you into truth. He'll lead you into truth. Now, here's what you need to know about this text. I don't have a ton of time to break down this theologically, but I'm going to try and be brief. And if you have lots of questions, we'll pray that the Holy Spirit keeps me from heresy. If not, you can throw rocks at me in the back of the building, which is what's commanded in the Old Testament. Okay, so um, Jesus was fully God, fully man. But not ceasing to be God, he walked on earth wrapped in flesh, laying aside his divine attributes as the Son, living a spirit-filled and led life as an example for the coming believer. It says in John 4 that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So the life Jesus lived in the flesh was a life that was Spirit-filled and Spirit-led so that you and I would know what a Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life looked like when the Spirit came and was given to us after salvation. That's why Jesus can say, even greater things than these you will do. Why? Because he knows that the Spirit that's within him will now be in you as a priesthood of believers and will send you out to the nations to carry the gospel to places that Jesus physically never carried it. (laughs) This is good stuff. So he leads us. Now, here's what's going on in the text. Jesus says the Spirit's been around you. What does he mean by that? He's been around you. He's saying, you've seen the Spirit at work in me, and he's even uniquely empowered the disciples for spiritual work where he sent them out on ministry. But in Acts 2, the Spirit's going to fall on the disciples, and they're going to preach the gospel in different languages and different tongues, and thousands will hear the gospel in their native language and respond. If Pete and the boys go out a day before Pentecost, it don't go well. David Platt said the biggest hindrance to the work of God, he's a pastor, the biggest hindrance to the work of God is the people of God trying to do his work apart from the Spirit of God. Many of you don't have much fruit in your labors for ministry because you're trying to do it in your flesh. Fleshly things cannot accomplish spiritual work. It takes spiritual weapons to win a spiritual war. You've been equipped by the Holy Spirit for the work that God has called you to do. He leads you in this work, number two. He advocates for you. He leads you, number three. He lives in you. He lives in you. In you. Where do we get that from? Verse 17. He's, you've seen him at work around me, it says in verse 17, but he will come and he will live in you. He will be in you. This is the beauty. This is what's talked about in Colossians chapter 3. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is why we have hope for your marriage and why you may have quit on it, but we've not because a cord of three strands, God's present, God's active. You're saying, I got no, nothing else for him. I don't have any more mercy. I don't have any more forgiveness. I don't have any more chances. Good news, 
The Spirit of God is at work in your marriage, has made himself available to you so when you run out, there's a well that won't run dry. There's a plumb line that you have that can supply you with what you lack. Man, the Holy Spirit's good. We don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit in our little circles and huddles, right? We let a few churches, they major on the Spirit and maybe minor on some of the truth. Then you got other churches that they major on truth, but they do it devoid of the Spirit. As if these two things are in contradiction to each other. No, the, the Spirit advocates for the believer. It leads the believer. It lives in the believer. And then finally, number four, it teaches the believer. There's going to be things that you don't understand and you don't know. And you're going to have to be taught. And that's what the text speaks of multiple times. Verse 26b being the last of it that we see in chapter 14 where he says, The Spirit, He will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. So that's why Jesus can say to uh, the disciples who are undertrained and undereducated people, when you stand before rulers and leaders and they're questioning you and they're grilling you, and they know more doctrine about the Old Testament than you do, don't worry about what you're going to say. For the Spirit will... Now, many of us read that like, oh, I'm not, not going to study the Bible. No, you should be a student of the Word. The Word should dwell inside of you. It's, it's not one or the other. It's not like neglect pursuits of God because the Spirit will show up and do it for you. No, be spiritually prepared for battle. Don't be caught in a battle without the belt of truth. Right? I, I, this, make, this, this is computing to you. So we pursue God, we hide His word in our heart, but we don't get to the test where people are asking questions and then we're going, I don't know what to say, I'm so worried. No, the Spirit will equip you with what to say. Half this sermon is not on the paper. Week in and week out. Like, if you, I should be done by now. So you're like, could you just stick to it then? <laughs> like, we should have wrapped up like 15 minutes. No, the Spirit of God is here. The Word of God is open. He's working to teach, to draw, to advocate, to woo many of you who are in your tombs. And you still check Christian on the census. But you're as dead as a whitewashed tomb. The outside of the cup is clean. The inside of the cup is filthy. And there's no fruit that speaks to the Spirit. And God's desire is that you will live a fruitful life, not that you would pray a prayer and live a religious encounter life that compartmentalizes God into areas where you honor Him and while you have idols in the house that you bow your knee to in long seasons of walking in darkness. You didn't stumble into it. You live in the darkness. You just every now and then come into the light to make an appearance. I mean, consider this. I want you to understand. Jesus is coming back. Like it's become a punchline and a joke. But it's a promise that he made. He called his own death in chapter 14. There's an apologetic in verses 27 to 29 that explains why we should believe what he's saying because he's telling the disciples before he's died, I will die, you will have a funeral, you'll hide. And then I'm not going to be dead anymore. I'll start showing up. We're going to have a fish buffet. Thomas is going to doubt me. I'm going to show him the nail marks on my hands. He's going to feel them. He'll believe. But then you'll believe because of the witness of cowards that are now turned into courageous witnesses who are going to profess the gospel and carry a message out of Jerusalem that will impact and change the entire world because the Spirit of God will empower them and enable them and keep them in doing the work that God has called them to do. So you have a helper. And let me be clear. You need help. Like this Christian life, being a church, there's plenty of reasons we've given in carnal living of how the world should be 
skeptical of the church. You need help. I need help. I, I need a lot of help. But thank God I got an advocate who's a teacher and a leader who takes care of me. Now, John 16, he points out the work that the Spirit would do to prepare you for ministry. Not that you would do it, but that would already be being done. So as you're going in this commission, the, the Spirit's at work, and, and Jesus briefly speaks of that in John 16, uh, verse, uh, verse 7. Look at it with me. John 16, verse 7. He says this, But in fact, it is best for you, speaking to his disciples, that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate, that's what we just studied, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin. So the, the, what, here's what the Spirit does. As we profess the gospel, he convicts the sinner of the sin. It's not you preaching hellfire and brimstone that brings the conviction. It's not you saying the right words. It's, it's you standing on, living in, believing and acting on the truth of God that then in the hearing of it, the Spirit convicts the hearer of I'm a sinner. I've fallen short and I need Jesus. That's what happens in Acts 2. They hear the Word of God preached by the disciples and they're cut to the heart. The Spirit convicts. What's the ultimate disbelief? Verse 9, the world sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died as a martyr in World War II, I wish I had more time to tell you a story. It's an incredible story. He was pulled out of Germany. I'm doing the preacher thing. I'm telling you the story after I told you I wouldn't. I wish I had time to tell you the story 15 minutes later. I'm just kidding. So uh, briefly, quickly, he's pulled out to be in safety. He was a German citizen. But he wrote a letter and left overnight to Moody and some of his friends. And he said, I cannot stand with the Christians in Germany after the war if I don't suffer in it with them during the war. He hung from the gallows days before America came and would have, and the European alliance would have come and emancipated him uh, for his freedom. He died at 39 years of age. <laughs> but he died preaching the gospel. One of his cellmates before his execution said he was still sharing the gospel with people around him. And in his last moments before he went out and he could see the gallows where he would hang, he knelt and prayed for those that would kill him. I mean, like, that doesn't come of your own origin. That's not because Bonhoeffer was brave. It's because he was spirit-filled. He convicts the world of sin. He said in his book, Cost of Discipleship, that all sin, all sin is a statement of unfaith in Jesus. At its root, all sin is you saying, I don't believe you, Jesus, in some way. Every act of sin, lust, adultery, it's you saying, I don't believe you're designed for relationships. Greed, I don't believe that you'll provide for me. Murder, I don't believe that you're my protector and my defender. All sin is first and foremost an act of sin against God. So the Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin before you ever preach the gospel. I've been in seasons of revival where I've had two responses. These are two real responses that happened. I went to church on a Sunday night, or excuse me, a Wednesday night, and a college couple walked in. They were living together, doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing. They're like, we need Jesus. And we heard this is the place where we need to come. Can you tell us about Jesus? I'm like, yep, we can do it. The Holy Spirit was convicting them. I didn't like walk them through the Roman road. 
I explained the gospel. I explained what it meant. They gave their life to Jesus. They were baptized. It was amazing. Had another guy who for a long season, we continued to preach the gospel to him and live the gospel out around him. And he had been hiding from us because that's what happens with some of y'all. Y'all go rogue and get in the deep parts of Woodruff. We don't see you for a few months. So he, he had that awkward moment where he ran into his pastor and he didn't want to. You ever had that moment? Oh, it's going to happen to some of you. You're going to find me up in Chili's in a couple weeks. In the middle of me being up in Chili's, you're going to be like, I, I just don't want to talk to you. And he said to me, he said, I'm not ready to surrender my life to Jesus. I believe the gospel is true, but I don't want that change. I don't want to give up my life, and I'm just not ready. Man, he was under conviction. He just was responding in a way that was saying no. So the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. Secondly, the Spirit comes to convict the world of righteousness. That's what you see in the text. If you pull it back up, it says this. He convicts the world of righteousness and of God's righteousness in the coming judgment. Righteousness is available, it says this in verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Now, we grade on a scale. How many of y'all remember that thermometer that your church used back in the day to fundraise? Y'all remember that? So everyone would give to the church and there'd be a thermometer that would build up. And for a lot of you, that's the way righteousness works. The top of it's Jesus, the bottom of it's Bruno. And somewhere in the middle... It's where you stack yourself. You're always more gentle on yourself than you are everybody else. You ever notice that? A lot of psychologists talk about that. Here's my point. We grade on the scale hoping that our curve will be high enough in comparison to other people that we can have confidence that when we stand on the last day before God, we'll be found righteous. Well, the text says he'll convict you of righteousness. Why? Because none of you are righteous. Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 10, it says this, just to make sure you understand it. Not just me, not just y'all, us. The scripture says, it's quoting the Psalms, no one is righteous, not even one, apart from Jesus. So how do the unrighteous be made righteous? Well, that's the gospel, once again. I'm so glad you asked. It goes on to say this in Philippians 3, 9. Look at it with me. It says, and we become one with him. I no longer count. This is Paul, who was perhaps the most in and of himself, carnally righteous person you could be. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law, memorized the law. He says, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, it's rubbish. I've spent my whole life trying to please God and know myself, and I threw all of it away to receive the gift of grace and the righteousness that could only come from Christ. It's this theological concept called imputation. It's so good, and I don't have tons of time like I did with the Bonhoeffer story, but here we go. So come here, Joe. So here's what's great. You... Joe represents all of us. He's unrighteous. He is in sin. And apart from Christ, condemned in that sin. That's me before Jesus. That's you before Jesus. That's where Joe is. Jesus is righteous, as my robe righteously demonstrates. And the gospel is the righteous one stepped into time. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse, 20, uh, verse 21, it says, God, the Father, made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. The saint, the Holy One, the Son of God, hung on a cross for your sin. And here's the good part. This is the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what the Spirit does. I don't make you holy. My preaching doesn't make you holy, thank God. But what makes you holy 
is that Jesus gives you what he has freely. And Martin Luther called it the great exchange. It's Jesus giving you what was his, even though you haven't earned it, even though you can't achieve it. Man, this is great. You can wear the robe the rest of the service. Praise God. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, number one. Number two, he convicts the world of righteousness so that we understand it. But number three, and this is important, he convicts the world of judgment. You'll see that in verse 8 and in verse 11. The judgment of God is spoken of freely. We get freaked out about in America because we have our own agendas. We want to build houses. We want to retire. We want to sit on a boat. We want to go RVing, whatever it is that you, know, you have. We want to see Carolina win a national championship in football. And let's just be honest, there's not enough time that God could give the world. I love you. <laughs> He's coming to judge. It's not to extend common grace, but it's coming in judgment as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says uh, this in verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, in the coming of judgment, verse 11, judgment will come because the rule of this world has already been judged. Here's my point. It's God's desire that none should perish, but that you should be saved by his cross, through his grace, and receive his righteousness. That's his invitation to you, to whosoever would believe. Uh, baptism is not a sign of salvation, but it's, or excuse me, it's not, it doesn't bring salvation, but it's a symbol that salvation has occurred, that you, by faith, have put your trust in Jesus. And we have three students that in just a second are going to get baptized. Yeah. Every, every great revival in American history started with teenagers going first because the parents dragged behind. Don't do that. Don't do that. The advocate convicts you and reminds you, hey, there's more to life than the 401k. There's more to life than your business surviving it. What if your business tanks and there's a peculiar glory that comes out of it that you don't understand until eternity for how God used that to shape you and deepen your roots in him? What if suffering brings greater goodness when it comes to eternal things than, than uh, thriving and going through? I, 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 Jesus knew why he was here. So he endured suffering to bring what was greater. Do you know why you're here? If not, then you won't endure the suffering. See, 2020 was a treasure check on the American church. 2020 was you getting inconvenienced and not being able to spend money and the stock market crashing in a way that checked of, are you storing up treasure on heaven on earth? And if you were wrecked by 2020, then it was an invitation. An invitation to realign the priorities of your life with kingdom agenda priorities. I was really into Clemson football, paid subscriber to figure out where 18-year-old kids were going to go to college. And I felt the Lord tell me, the time for paying that much attention to that is over. Know the season. Know what you're here for. <laughs> 2022 is a perspective check. Are you really living in light of eternity? Is, does that assured eternity in Christ impact the way that you're living? I mean, would we be like the Ukrainian believers found faithful in this moment if that war were here? Or would we be running and hoarding and, stuff and holding on to our stuff? Like, like, this is my question to you. So my encouragement is this. Lukewarm, in your tomb, Christian, repent and come alive. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and be baptized today. Don't care if the car gets wet. 
Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if this is your next step, take it along with these other teenagers. Our prayer team's gonna be here. Prayer team, you come forward. If you need to give your life to Jesus, we're here to talk with you about what that means. If you need to bend your knee in prayer, we invite you to bend your knee in prayer, but we invite you to move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand to our feet.